Does anybody remember how they got here? Pierogies. I was eating dinner. Pierogies, cheese and potato. I ran out of sour cream and then I went to the fridge and then... I don't know. You? Levin? I... I just went to bed and... What about you? I just woke up here. Middle of the night. It's like Chile. They always come in the middle of the night. Who? Only the government could build something this ugly. Oh, it ain't government. Then what is it? I don't know. Aliens. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond, the film podcast that covers the movies of the 1990s as well as newer movies that are somehow related to those movies of the 90s, usually sequels, spin-offs, offshoots of some sort that tie in with those movies of the 1990s that we cover here. If you like a little bit older movies, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. You can find the link on my website. It's called around the world in 80s movies find the link at my website quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net today we're going to stay in the 1990s with a movie that came out in 1997 although it was released later in different parts of the world it had a very long rollout depending on your location of distribution so film i'm going to be talking about today is a it's a very low budget film called cube although it does have a a pretty sizable cult following, and it even had sequels, which I'll talk about sometime a little bit later. Cube primarily saw its first screenings in 1997. It is a 90-minute film. It's an R-rated film. It does have strong science fiction violence, gore, and language. The cast includes Maurice Dean Wint, Nicole DeBoer, David Hewlett, Nikki Guadani, Andrew Miller, Wayne Robeson, and Julian Richings. The director of Cube is Vincenzo Natali, and the screenplay credited to Natali, as well as Andre Bajelic and Graham Manson. Now, the origin of Cube started with Detroit-born, Toronto-based science fiction nerd Vincenzo Natali. Natali kind of grew up with a passion for comic book, sci-fi, and eventually films. He found his childhood dream, though, of becoming an artist for Marvel Comics. That completely changed in 1997 when he was eight years old after he went to see Star Wars in the theaters. He called that a, a religious experience in terms of his changing his life because Star Wars embodied everything that he loved about comics, except it had this deeper emotional impact because of the music and the visuals and all of the acting and all of that coming together. No comic book could really touch that experience. That same year, Natalie befriended this neighborhood kid named Andre Bajelic, Sometime later, at age 11, Bajelic was gifted a, a Super 8 camera and began making his own short films. And with Bajelic's encouragement, Tallinn too took up making films. He made his first short in his apartment building's basement, a mostly improvised story that he dubbed Dark Force. They continued playing around with the camera and making their own short films, and as teenagers... Natalie and Bajelic continued collaborating throughout their summer vacations. It became a, a ritual through their teenage years. Bajelic mainly wrote and he edited, while Natalie did the storyboarding using his, his artistic flair. 
and they also alternated directorial duties for the various films. Upon graduation from secondary school, Natali enrolled as a film student at Ryerson Polytechnic Institute. Unfortunately, Ryerson didn't exactly teach the filmmaking skills that Natali was expecting and hoping to learn. In fact, he claimed his instructors seemed very out of touch with filmmaking and didn't really take it seriously at all. So he dropped out during his second year. He felt that the best way to learn filmmaking was by actually making films. To afford a 16mm camera, which was the preferred camera of choice for making short films, and also the film that accompanied it, Natali took a storyboard artist job at Nelvana, a Canadian animation and television studio, and there he worked primarily on Saturday morning cartoons. Natali observed that storyboarding actually gave him ample directorial skills, because here he was translating a script into images that would be used for the purpose of framing as well as editing. And what's more, even better than film school, he was getting paid instead of going into debt. However, film studios rarely gave breaks to anybody who didn't have professional experience. With a few exceptions, quirky filmmakers like David Lynch and the Coen brothers and David Cronenberg, they were able to make some films on shoestring budgets. But after Robert Rodriguez funded his first feature, El Mariachi, in the 1990s entirely on his own, Natali explored self-funded film possibilities. He thought maybe he could set aside about $30,000 and make his own feature film if nobody else was going to help him make it. But he felt that the most doable concept with that limited of a budget would probably be something that could take place in a single setting. There was difficulty there, though, because when you stick with a single setting, it sometimes comes across like a filmed stage play, and that's something he wanted to avoid if he wanted to show off his skills as a filmmaker. Now, Louis Malle's 1981 drama, My Dinner with Andre, did demonstrate that there was a way to do it, but Natali didn't feel he had that kind of, the talent set to create a two-hour conversation and make it riveting for a feature film, and he really didn't have much desire either. But he did think that Alfred Hitchcock's 1944 film called Lifeboat, which entirely took place with a cast of, a motley cast of characters on a lifeboat in the open ocean that demonstrated suspenseful entertainment was possible using a small set. Now in 1990, Natali had an epiphany. He thought a single set could offer you the kind of movement that you want in a film if it were actually used for different locations. And the way to do that was if it were within a maze of identical looking rooms. Natali wanted to emulate one of his favorite pieces of art, M.C. Escher's 1953 painting, Relativity, where you could see characters can go up and down and forward and back instead of linearly within a maze. The problem is the only way that he could think to represent three-dimensional movement inexpensively was probably going to be a set that was symmetrical on all sides, like a, like a cube-shaped room with doors on every side connecting to other identical-looking cube-shaped rooms. Natali spent years trying to devise a scenario that would make it all plausible, Eventually, he settled on setting his idea in hell, but like a modernist version of hell, not the kind that we envision when we think of like, like Dante's Inferno or something like that. The characters he felt should be strangers that were placed into this cube maze. They wouldn't know its context, why they were there, what they're supposed to do. Survival would require them to pull their resources. But in the end, they realize they're in hell. Escape is 
futile. So Natalie began developing concept drawings, characterizations, bits of dialogue, trying to put it all together. Eventually, he was able to draft a script when he became bedridden with pneumonia for a lengthy amount of time in 1993. Now, Natalie's first draft had a very absurdist, Terry Gilliam-like comic tone with fantasy elements that he felt was comparable to Alice in Wonderland. The characters would be all male accountants that would be lured somehow from the outside world into this cube maze. And each room would have its own novel concept, like a room would have nothing but open umbrellas within, etc. The maze would have perils. There would be a minotaur there, although later it was revealed that the minotaur was really an elderly man in a costume. There was a, a maze inhabitant who had turned cannibal to try to feed himself. Sustenance, though, could be had if you ate some of the moss that was growing on some of the cube walls. After he was done, Natali showed his completed draft to his lifelong friend, Bajelic. Bajelic happened to be his housemate at the time, and Bajelic read it. He enjoyed the basic concept of this cube maze movie, but he found it very overly complicated. It was very busy to the point where it was very distracting, these fantasy elements diverted a lot of attention away from the suspense of whether the characters were going to survive or escape. And Natali did admit that after years of storyboarding animation at Nirvana, maybe that found him gravitating toward all of these uh, very visual, whimsical developments. Pajelic also suggested that characters in this story should probably do a little bit more than quip and navel gaze. It was really hard to relate to them because they were always deflecting. And moreover, introductory scenes prior to their entry into the cube should probably be removed because, you know, their personal history and troubles really didn't matter once they entered the cube. All that we really cared about is what the cube maze is and whether they get out. So Natalie collaborated with Bajelic and they spent the next six months streamlining his original story. They replaced all of those fantasy elements with more real world items. Mythological monsters were replaced by deadly traps, these razor sharp wires or acid sprayers or poison gases or flamethrowers, booby traps around the maze. They removed all manner of food and water because they felt that that would escalate the tension. These characters have to find an escape within a few days or perish from thirst. Natali compared their streamlined plot to very bleak, very oppressive Russian prison films. They actually started screening prison films for inspiration like Stalag 17 and Escape from Alcatraz, and they also expanded into very tense, suspenseful films that were in enclosed spaces like Das Boot and 2001 A Space Odyssey and Alien and Aliens and they started renaming characters after international prisons. They had characters like Levin and Worth from, of course, Leavenworth. Quentin from San Quentin. There was also a character at that time named Riker. Later, they dropped that name from Riker's Island. So continuing the prison motif, the accountants were re-envisioned. Now they would be criminals. Some of the criminal characters would change for the better through the course of their movie, and others would have their worst instincts emerge and redemption would become a theme for the movie. This would be kind of like a purgatory rather than outright hell. They would find the light of escape by atoning for their sins. In order to try to distinguish the characters, they started thinking each character in terms of certain movie actors or maybe movie characters. For instance, at that time, Quentin, 
embodied Woody Allen. If you see the finished film, you know that that's probably as far from Woody Allen as possible, but at that time, that's what it was. Worth was more like Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, and Riker was modeled after Michael Bean in The Abyss. Levin was Robin Williams in, the, in Awakenings, and there was a character named Egon, which would later be renamed to Kazan after this Russian psychological hospital. Egon was an autistic person that was patterned after Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Other roles envisioned big stars like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Harrison Ford or Jeremy Irons. And after they completed their new script, Natali performed his own polish before Bajelic ultimately did one of his own, one in which he made substantial additional changes, including replacing the escape portal located in the center of the maze Natali had originally conceived in his fantasy days as a containing a beating heart within this rusty cage Instead of being escape in the middle, the revolutionary idea would involve cubes periodically moving according to preset patterns that, kind of like a, a combination lock, would open the right door in the right cube at the right time that would lead to a bridge out of this massive cube structure. The cubes were within a giant cube building. Engraved serial numbers near each doorway's opening would provide clues that the characters would decipher as a mathematical pattern revealing coordinates. Now, in 1994, they began realizing that $30,000 would not come close to covering the costs of making this into a feature film. So they decided they should try to shop their script around, at least to Canadian studios. Now, at that time, the Canadian film industry wasn't really robust enough to fund many movies, especially obscure science fiction concepts that were difficult to envision just from reading the script. And the only interest for Cube came from severely underfunded companies that wanted commercial changes. For instance, North Star Entertainment wanted an action hero protagonist to get captured at the beginning of the film, and then he would get thrown into the Cube. He would fight for survival and then ultimately discover that there's a villain behind it all who would get his comeuppance in the climax. The filmmakers, they tried to work through compromises to get their film made, but they felt that adding a, a defined villain was kind of a deal breaker from what they wanted to do with the film, ultimately. It would become a completely different film, they felt. Meanwhile, Natali delved into making his own short movies, which gained him entrance into Norman Jewison's prestigious Canadian Film Center's resident program in Toronto, and that's where emerging industry professionals could hone their skills through non-academic classes. The CFC had this feature film project. The project offered select center graduates the resources to make a film, their first film, using $350,000 Canadian, matched by outside film industry sources. Now, despite Natalie's elaborate models, his drawings, his storyboards, every detail was all spelled out in his preparation material. His proposal to the film project, they were declined for two years straight. Basically, they felt that its single location concept was going to prove too monotonous to sustain a full-length feature. But things did change in Natali's direction. A little bit of luck came his way. He made a 17-minute short film called Elevated, which featured a very similar premise to Cube, but in this case, three people are stuck in an elevator that would get menaced by this unseen force. Elevated would be seen as a pretty good short film, and it was nominated, in fact, for Best Live Action Short Drama at Canada's 1997 Genie Awards. And the center reconsidered Cube's merits after that point, and they approved it in the next feature project. Pre-production began in summer of 1996, 
And while Cube's concepts and mechanics remained very impressive throughout, Natalia and Bajelic did feel as they started to prepare it into a film that it somehow lacked a soul. And that stemmed from this disconnect that they had with the criminal characters. They weren't criminals themselves. They didn't know criminals personally. So what they knew of criminals was really from movies. And so they seemed very sketchy, very idealized. So these characters were basically larger than life and they were already placed in a larger than life situation, a very sketchy, idealized situation on its own. So they felt that there was a humanity that was lacking there. And they wanted audiences to find joy in discovering these characters as well as their interplay so that we could connect ultimately with the story's mechanics and the plot once it takes hold. Now, the center provided a full crew for the filmmakers to utilize, residents there that they could request the services of, so they felt that they needed to bring in maybe an experienced screenwriter to come take a look at this. So the center assigned Graham Manson. Graham Manson, if that name sounds familiar to you, if you're a science fiction fan, he was the future co-creator of the show Orphan Black. And they also provided a, a very experienced story editor named Hugh Graham, and they ultimately suggested that maybe they should change the characters from criminals to everyday people from different walks of life. Now, unfortunately, this required completely rebuilding the story, and they were six weeks from the very start of production beginning. So it was very harrowing because sets were still being constructed, costumes were being made, actors needed to be cast. So Natali's stress level grew overwhelming, so overwhelming that he contemplating maybe he should just walk away at this point. Maybe it just could never be made. But Bajelic stopped him. He said, if he walked away, he might never get another chance like this again. This is what he always dreamed of. So Natali took that to heart. He persevered. He, no, he constantly felt that things were eventually going to fall apart and it wasn't going to get made in the end. Now, initially they developed this hero type protagonist named McNeil. He would be patterned after Bruce Willis and Die Hard. He would become the team leader before meeting a shockingly early demise that would really throw audiences that anybody could get killed in their story at any time. Now, they decided later that they wanted to merge McNeil's character with that of his main nemesis in the film, uh, kind of the bad guy character named Quentin. They merged McNeil and Quentin into one character called Quentin McNeil. And th they felt that this would actually enhance the film because they were adding a complex character arc, kind of this authority figure who becomes fascist as he undergoes prolonged dress. There was another character named Worth in this film. He was originally going to reveal that he is like a, the guard of the cube structure outside. He was tasked with killing anybody who escaped. And unfortunately, he became trapped himself in the maze. So now he's just like them. He reveals further throughout the course of the movie that these cubes are really an elaborate experiment that collects data for the creation of this artificial supermind artificial intelligence, essentially. Each prisoner has a, a brain implant that is monitoring their mental activity as they avoid traps or try to decipher clues. Now, the filmmakers later determined that these characters should probably, instead of getting all this explanation, instead of this info dump from Worth, that maybe they should throughout wonder the same things that we do. You know, is this a government experiment? Is this just a crazy scheme by some eccentric billionaire? Are they in an insane asylum or a, a prison gone amok or purgatory or hell, as was the original intention, or maybe they were abducted by aliens somehow? These questions should probably not be explicitly dealt with. 
So it would leave cube to be more like a metaphor for the system, whatever the system is that oppresses us. We wouldn't see the madman pulling the strings like Jigsaw from the Saw films. Instead, we would relate to it universally because the key to human survival is really cooperation among everybody and communication. And those things that threaten survival are the opposite of that. People not cooperating, people not communicating. So Worth was downgraded. He would be more like an unwitting pawn. He would become more like an architect working on the cube structure who became trapped himself, but he doesn't really know a lot more than anybody else, just a little bit more. And what he does know convinces him that somehow they're in some sort of government program that had gone awry and maybe it was subsequently abandoned and nobody was at the helm anymore. It was a very nihilistic character at that point who felt that they were wasting their time trying to get out. They were just doomed. Other characters were painted in there to make it more like a drama of people of disparate origins. A liberal medic named Holloway, a math prodigy, which was needed to decipher the clues in the cube, Levin, Kazan, an autistic savant, and an ex-con escape artist, the one that they thought was going to lead them out of the structure, Ren. And Ren would actually ultimately meet the early demise, which really throws everything for a loop. Now, while many of the threats within the cube structure are physical, the success of these characters depends completely on overcoming the mental and psychological obstacles that threaten to continuously tear them apart. So human survival relies on all of us coming together, overcoming seemingly insurmountable obstacles. But in order to get us to care for the characters a little bit more, they devised a hook for us as the viewers. Factions were going to emerge within the group between those who wanted to help Kazan, the autistic savant, and those who feel like he's some sort of dead weight that ultimately is going to set off a trap somehow and kill them all. And our allegiance to these characters will greatly depend on who we think is right in that particular situation. Natalie struggled, though, to devise a very satisfying ending. He initially contemplated that maybe certain characters like Kazan and Levin and Holloway, they would ultimately, as the more benign characters, escape before the structure detonated into some sort of nuclear explosion. However, Natalie's then-girlfriend, a woman named Tamara Pravica, suggested that maybe Kazan should really be the only survivor because the others really aren't worthy. They're somehow too caught up in their own private hell. They should remain there. Tamara's math student brother, David Pravica, he proposed maybe there should be something more, a twist to their use of prime numbers in the engraved codes. The primes could be represented actually as very large numbers if they use this von Mangolt function, and that could represent the coordinates of cube movements within their established travel path. In fact, he actually created kind of a mock five by five way that this could be done. Something that a math whiz like Levin could recognize as a mathematical pattern, but only somebody like a, uh, an autistic savant like Kazan could probably figure out without a computer. Now it dawned on Natalie and Bajelic years later, years later, that their, their cube concept might've actually psychologically stemmed subconsciously from their personal existential feeling of confinement and isolation during this very bleak and uncertain period in their lives. Their story is about six starving, confined people struggling to escape their confined predicament, trying to avoid death, 
that actually mirrored their daily existence. Natalia and Bajelic were living with four other housemates within this cramped townhouse, trying to find some way to get out of this situation in their lives that they can make it on their own, do their own living, in a sense. So Cube was really kind of a metaphor for that feeling that they had at that moment. Now, two roles were specifically written with Natalie's high school friends in mind. Worth was specifically written for David Hewlett and Kazan for Andrew Miller, they've known since they were teenagers. Hewlett was actually Natalie's muse. He appeared in Natalie's 16mm shorts when they were teenagers, and everything he's done since, he would always put David Hewlett in anything that he did. Now, Miller was somebody that introduced by Hewlett to them, and he became an actor that they would use. And They confessed to Miller when they hired him on that they really had not researched autism beyond just screening the movie Rain Man. So they asked him to do his own research, figure it all out if they, he wanted to, to make it seem more than a stereotype. Miller really didn't want to misrepresent autism, so he connected with local groups. He visited a Los Angeles-based halfway house that helped Hollywood actors with their performances. He based Kazan, his character, on a very specific young person that he met in a subway that was extremely sensitive to noise and lights, despite being in a subway. Meanwhile, Hewlett claims that for his performance, he channeled Andre Bajelic's personality, even though Bajelic didn't know it at the time. In fact, Bajelic thought he was basically doing an impression of Natali, who was very similar in disposition. Other roles were filled through traditional casting calls. They emphasized television actors that had experience working with a tight budget and schedule. The shooting schedule was 20 days, and they found this warehouse within Wallace Studios. They needed a space that had very high ceilings that would rent out for very little money. The cube space was 14 feet by 14 feet by 14 feet, but it also needed to be lifted four feet off the ground so that they could backlight the floor because the floor was just like any of the walls. The warehouse they found was in a very noisy area of town. Trains were regularly running by. They felt that the shaking of the train to the cube would add some sort of ambiance to the cube's theoretical movements within the cube structure. Resident cinematographer Derek Rogers, he he had actually worked with Natalie on Elevated, so he had some experience working in confined spaces. He shot Cube. Rogers wanted to emulate the very pristine and symmetrical and mathematical qualities of Stanley Kubrick, especially in 2001 A Space Odyssey, to make Cube come to life. Now, Natalie originally envisioned that the cubes would be all white inside, but Rogers suggested that they should, maybe they should change the colors of the cubes to different colors, kind of like a Rubik's cube, further suggesting that there would be movement from one to the next. If you go from a red cube to a blue cube, even though you're technically in the same cube when you're shooting it, audiences would perceive it as a different cube. So one full-sized six-sided cube was constructed where they would do all their acting inside. And there was also going to be a half cube, which featured two walls, and a ceiling, and that was going to be visible when you look through one of the open doors. So if you open a door in the cube, you'll see the half cube and see that there's another room on the other side of that door. Cube walls were designed to contain translucent gel panels that would be backlit with about 1,200 evenly distributed 100-watt bulbs exhibiting five colors. They actually, they, they actually wanted to do six colors like a Rubik's Cube, but they ran out of money. So they stuck with five, and that would denote different rooms. Changing the colors though, was very laborious because there were a lot of different gels on every side that needed to be removed and replaced with another color every time that they wanted to change the location. 
And that also made continuity a challenge. There were also a kind of a cheat. A few lights were placed inside the cube because they found that there wasn't really enough lighting once you put all of the colored gels in to give an ample illumination to capture the actors. So, so now that things were set, Natali got to the first day of production and he calls it the worst day of his life because the doors, which were these complex mechanisms that were designed similar to roof hatches on vans, they would not open. No matter how much effort that he put into it, they couldn't get any of them to budge. They were installed in haste, along with everything else. They were never tested by those who installed them. Forcing them with enough effort made them fall off the walls completely, which would not do. So without any solution, they contemplated maybe they should just shut down the production until they figured it out. But unfortunately, this probably would lead to canceling the movie altogether because there wasn't enough money to relaunch it eventually at a later date. So Natali, who had intended to shoot the film in linear order, he rushed to film instead this intense and very lengthy and critical scene from the middle of his script that the actors were completely unprepared for. Hewlett had to cram up and memorize about 10 pages of dialogue, which consisted of Worth's confession that he knew more about the cube system than he had been letting on. Halfway through the shoot, though, about 10 days into the 20-day shoot, second unit supervisor William Phillips did manage to devise a very makeshift door using scrap wood and styrofoam and a very flimsy pulley system that he had put together after buying some parts from a, a hardware store using coupons. It was obviously very flimsy and people didn't think it would work, but the sound effects that were added very heavy sounding sound effects sold the illusion that there was a very substantial elaborate contraption in play and it actually worked out pretty well. So Natali persevered. He knew that his filmmaking future ultimately depended on Cube's completion, regardless of its quality. As long as he got it done, at least he could show that he could put a movie together. So Cube, because of these obstacles, taught him to be economical, how to compromise and work very decisively. And ultimately, he had to ditch a lot of the script because of these delays. Unnecessary elements that threatened the schedule and budget had to be shot out. For instance, when they could not afford a camera-shaking rig to simulate cubes shifting around, they devised basically a $30 solution. They placed their camera under plywood and, and rubber shocks atop this vibrating mechanism that was like an industrial device that was used for shaking trash out of construction bins. The actors endured monotonous 12-hour days inside the cube. And it wasn't just actors inside the cube, but you also had Natalie there and Rogers, the cinematographer, and a lot of the other crew that needed to be there. In fact, up to 36 people would be inside the cube at once. So the sweat that you see on the actors' faces when you see the movie, that was not intentional. They all referred to the cube as the easy bake oven because the heat from all of their bodies, as well as the lighting rig that was surrounding them, that really did not dissipate well within the confines of this enclosed cube. And the flooring itself, which was additionally made of the same wood and plexiglass as the walls and the ceiling, that proved to be a squeaky trip hazard that constantly was distracting the actors from their performances. They, they tried, as they moved around, not to, not to wedge their foot into some place where it didn't belong. But they also didn't want to look down and make it obvious that they were trying to avoid things. Without space for dollies in the cube or any kind of money in the budget for steady cams, they resorted to using mostly handheld cameras. Sometimes they could put the handheld camera on a tripod for a particularly tense scene. 
the crew realized that there was a, a certain irony that they were all in the cube and trapped in the cube, solving problems, using teamwork, really emulating the characters' plights of their story. Now, unfortunately for Natali, he found that many of the crew that came from the center carried a, a kind of a sense of entitlement to being there. They felt that they were working essentially with inexperienced filmmakers, and in particular, Cube seemed to be something that they dismissed early on. They thought maybe it was just trashy science fiction. It was unworthy of the reputation of the center and certainly not worthy of funding. And that's when problems started to emerge because these entitled members of the crew felt that with all of the problems that Cube was certain not to actually get made and it was just never going to go anywhere anyway. And they started having kind of very, very contentious attitude toward being there, which bordered on mutiny because they started arriving late, later and later every day. And they started taking extended lunches. And Natali was a nice guy. He didn't really say anything until one day he just got so fed up with the disrespect he was being shown that he erupted in a litany of profanity at the situation. And he started ranting about, he kicked the chair and he broke his toe. And at that point, things did change. The crew did get the message that, that they were actually becoming the problem rather than the solution. And so they shaped up. But unfortunately, by that point, the damage was done to the schedule. Natali was not very sure at that point that he could even complete the film, even without tardiness, because there was a 20-day deadline to make this film, and they were limited, a hard limit of 12-hour workdays, strictly enforced. Reluctantly, they started cutting scenes out of the film, and they had to retool others with extra dialogue to try to hold the story together. And in a last-ditch scramble, as they neared the final couple of days, the actors and the main filmmakers had to voluntarily work nonstop for 37 hours straight before the deadline to complete what they could. They didn't get paid for that extra time that, that the center would not fund. They did it essentially entirely without pay because they believed in the project and wanting Natali to succeed. In addition to the contributions of the actors and some of the crew, there were local special effects houses that also contributed to the success of Cube. Core Digital Pictures handled digital effects and Caligari Studios handled makeup and practical effects. They essentially worked for free. They were offered profit percentage deferments, actually. So if Cube were released in theaters and actually made some money, they would get some of that money back. These companies did have a, a friendly association with the CFC and also a, a firm belief in what they were doing. So they felt in the end, it would benefit them to be part of this process. But dwindling time and limited budget did force cuts to several elaborate death trap sequences that were intended for the film. So Natali decided he was gonna relegate the most gruesome effect for the opening. That's where Alderson, uh, a character that you only know in the beginning of the film, gets sliced and diced by wires. After seeing that, the intricate dangers would stay in the viewer's imaginations for the remainder of the film. So they didn't really have to show how gruesome those were once they saw that first gruesome kill. Now, one effect that Natali didn't even intend that would end up enhancing the entire film was the cube structure's exterior surface was done with special effects. And Natali originally described the world directly outside the cube structure as a black abyss. But Core showed Natali how actually they could open up the film visually by showing this. And they built on the original cube structure concept and they recreated the image as if thousands of cubes were encompassing the entire structure. So audiences would have a visual representation of how huge the giant cube building really was, where 
Now, as the film project had suggested, including shots of the outside world for context, Natalie did reluctantly shoot some extra footage, guerrilla style, that would show Worth getting captured. And another scene where Kazan, in his escape, he walks out into the cube-like buildings of downtown Toronto, kind of an, an irony that we're all living in cubes, I guess, in the end. Now, neither did feel right for the final cut, so he ditched them because the real world footage made the cube world seem even more fake. So Kazan, at the end, walking into the light and we not seeing where he's going, that was kind of his way of compromising of showing the outside world. But he, he thought that showing anything in particular beyond that was going to be a letdown. Now, once they were done with the production, in contrast to the shoot, post-production was far less stressful for Natalie because he had five months to edit all of this footage and experiment without anybody there to second guess him. He did have to get the score for the film composed, so Natalie instructed the assigned composer Mark Corvin to avoid anything that sounded like music. He wanted there to be nothing but maybe unidentifiable noises, nothing that should be recognizable in particular as a musical instrument. So so Corvin used a, a sampling synthesizer to put in random noises in there that included like the slowed down sounds of animals or, or monks chanting. He, he even had his girlfriend whisper. Corvin did eventually convince Natalie that maybe a few musical cues at certain moments would enhance the suspense and drama. So there was a little bit of music in there, not, not a lot. After it was all said and done, Cube did debut in 1997 at the Toronto International Film Festival. They hoped while they were there that they could land an American distributor. Dimension Films had an early interest in Cube, but later concluded after musing about it that American audiences were just going to find Cube too weird and dissatisfying to come out and see. And then something fortunate did happen. Cube won the City TV Award presented there for Best Debut by a Canadian. Natalie won $15,000 for the prize, which he gave to the second unit supervisor, Phillips, for essentially saving the film by coming up with this door solution halfway through the film. Phillips would turn around and use the money to fund his own first short film called Milkman, which he went on to cast David Hewlett in. David Cronenberg, famous filmmaker, Canadian filmmaker, came by. He was invited to Screen Cube, and Cronenberg provided some quotes of praise about Cube that were used to help the marketing. And as a thank you, Natalie gifted Cronenberg the di dissected head prop of Alderson, the man who was killed in the, in the prologue, sliced into chunks by these razor wire booby traps. Uh, by the way, that scene, the filmmakers say, was inspired by this Tom and Jerry cartoon called Tennis Chumps, where Tom runs through a tennis net and comes out the other side of the net in chunks and falls to the floor. Cineplex Odeon did pick up the Canadian distribution, while Trimark Pictures decided to handle the distribution in the United States and everywhere else. However, after test screenings in America received very poor marks, Trimark did go back to Natalie and request that they film an additional action sequence to bolster the very talky middle of the picture. And maybe they should add a new ending of showing Kazan actually walking into a space full of mini cubes as he originally intended. However, the cost of rebuilding the set and as well as hiring everybody back just to film these two scenes would have exceeded the cost that they just spent for the entire movie. So Trimark decided to just forego all of that additional tinkering and go with it as is and hope that it found an audience. Unfortunately, Cube did fare poorly in North America and Canada, 
as well as in the United States, it just didn't go anywhere in a limited run. It's thought that these marketers really didn't have a clue as to what audiences might enjoy a film like Cube, so they didn't really know how to really advertise it. But Cube found a life of its own afterward. It was welcomed enthusiastically in countries where mature science fiction concepts, especially countries with a science fiction culture, subculture, accustomed to ambiguous narratives and dark endings. For instance, in France, Metropolitan Film Export invested $800,000 to promote Cube directly to science fiction geeks. They commissioned all new fancy posters. They even had the filmmakers come out. They flew them out as well as the actors to meet the film goers. It became a big experience for them. At the Gerard May Festival of Fantasy Film, Cube earned not only the audience prize, but also the critics prize and ultimately the grand prize there. It was very well regarded there and Cube earned nearly $4 million in its first 40 days of release in France. And that was the second highest grossing film in that period. And when it was all said and done, once you counted all the receipts, it earned over $10 million in France alone. And in Japan, it also did very well and it topped the video charts upon its release. It also scored prestigious festival prizes in other countries like Belgium and Mexico and Spain and South Korea. But I do think that ultimately Cube is a worthwhile film. It's definitely worth a watch, even in a confined space, even with its limitations and some of the amateurish qualities of it and the fact that not everything really holds together 100% satisfactorily. It is still a compelling idea and it does manage to build some suspense. We get wrapped up in these characters and their conversations in this intimate setting. And there are a nice number of reveals that keep us continuously riveted as to how it's ultimately going to play out. I do think it's a novel concept. It's a kind of a gimmicky film in that respect. And while it is a novel concept, it's not 100% original. You know, some people do compare it to like Rod Serling's 1961 Twilight Zone episode called Five Characters in Search of an Exit. That episode itself drew comparisons to Luigi Pirandello's 1921 play called Six Characters in Search of an Author and Jean-Paul Sartre's 1944 play called No Exit, and all of these stories having the premise of characters put into this strange situation, not knowing why they're there or really how to get out. It all is in keeping with that, but I think Cube manages to be more of a blank slate. It, it, it transcends some of those comparisons by ultimately being kind of its own thing. The cast, I think they do what they can to breathe life into idealized roles. That The acting is very hit or miss, probably because they didn't have enough time to do multiple takes or really rehearse a lot. But still, above all of this, Cube remains inherently ambitious. It's delightfully cerebral in a way that other science fiction concepts are not because most sci-fi films cost a lot of money to put in effects and stuff like that. But Natalie didn't have to worry about whether the movie made money or not. The gory effects work that is in here is still very impressive for a low budget scale. The production design itself is very remarkable providing the illusion of a much larger environment. It does work in the end. And I think that Natalie and others who contributed should be commended for the way that they made it work on one set. Characterizations here are more utilitarian than they are rounded, perhaps, and the quality of the acting I've already gone into, but the, the mystery still builds the requisite suspense that you want. And I think that in particular, it's going to meet well for viewers who like to shed their own theories as to what it's all about. It gives you enough information to kind of formulate that it might be about something, and what that something is, 
is in the eye and the mind of the beholder. And that's why I think some people will watch Cube repeatedly to try to figure out what ultimately it's about, even though maybe the filmmakers themselves don't exactly know, even though it's fun to theorize what it could be about. Fan theories are out there if you've watched Cube and you want to know a little bit more about what people make of it. Interestingly enough, although it is his defining film and it does have a cult of hardcore fans worldwide, Natalie does confess that he himself has a hard time watching Cube nowadays. He only sees its flaws and limitations, which he feels are substantial enough to kind of bother him in a way as he's become a more seasoned, experienced filmmaker over the years. But as long as you know going in the origin of Cube and know that it's a very low-budget film... I think that you will be more forgiving and you will ultimately probably give Cube the credit that it deserves for being unique and interesting and witty and nerdy in all the, the good ways, enough to overcome its limitations. And that's why ultimately I will give Cube three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that it is something that I think is worthwhile if you like this kind of movie. And the more hardcore science fiction nerd you are, I think the more you're probably apt to respond positively to a film like Cube. If you're a little bit more put off by science fiction concepts, and especially if you kind of shy away from films that are a little bit more bleak, or maybe gory or depressing in some form or fashion, or it doesn't give you all the answers and it bothers you that it doesn't, maybe this film is not going to be for you in the end. But for those people who prefer not getting it all laid out on a platter and dumbed down for you, I do think that Cube will emerge, at least as a three-star, maybe above movie, depending on how well that hits you. So check that out if you haven't seen it already. I do recommend at least giving it a try. Now, Cube did happen to have a couple of sequels. Well, one of them was a sequel and one of them was a prequel. And it also got a remake, I think a Japanese remake sometime later. And those films I will cover here on To the 90s and Beyond because they are purporting to continue the story of Cube. Will they do justice to Natalie's original vision? Well, that remains to be seen. These will be first time watches for me, even though Natalie did have a little bit more input into the Japanese remake, so we'll check that out when the time comes. Next week, going to 2002 for Cube 2 Hypercube. So check that out if you have watched Cube and enjoyed Cube. I won't take as long to review that film as I did this film because because of the nature of the show, I don't really go into all of the sources where I got information from in order to give you these very in-depth historical looks at these movies, but I do want to say in this particular case, one particular source was very valuable in constructing this episode. So I want to give a plug to A.S. Berman and the 2018 book called Cube, Inside the Making of a Cult Classic. It is on Bear Manor Media. And if you like this episode covering Cube here on uh, To the 90s and Beyond, I do recommend picking up this book because it goes into a lot more depth than I was able to cover here. And I only scratched the surface probably of, of the amount of detail that's in this book. So A.S. Berman's Cube, Inside the Making of a Cult Classic. I recommend it to all Cube fans. If you have your own thoughts on Cube that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Facebook and Instagram and X or Twitter or whatever. And... Also, my personal email are found at that site. I do recommend email in particular if you want to send me a message for any reason. And until next time when we cover Cube 2, thank you everyone for listening and joining me 
as we continue to journey to the 90s and beyond. <laughs>